be honest with you, uh, I looked at when the Packers game started this week, and I thought, we just won't have anybody at Saturday night. So uh, I don't know, either you get more like spirituality points that you're like showing that I'm willing to miss the game, to be here, uh, or you just thought like, well, I can't influence the game, I might as well come and pray, and maybe that would have like the best effect on whether or not they win. I don't know uh, what it is. Either way, I'm, I'm very encouraged and, and just excited by uh, the privilege it is for all of us to gather here. Maybe you're like, I didn't know there was a football game on. That's cool. You don't get any points at all, uh, but I'm glad you're here too. Uh, I, I, I'm just encouraged by the opportunity that we have to gather together with the saints. Uh, this past uh, 10, 11 months has really challenged us to try to uh, think through, understand what that means and what it looks like. Uh, and yet we, we know the, the church in its essence is about God's people in fellowship, in relationship with one another for the glory of God's name. And so uh, out of that, as we've kind of adapted and changed and, and worked through these different things, and really uh, I, think, I think some of the things that might be healthy for us as a church body, uh, thinking long term, really, really kind of breaking some tendencies, some habits, and trying to develop some new ones, and then figuring out like what was good for us, what might not be good for us, and working through all those things has been helpful. And yeah, in all of it, uh, one of the things we come back to again and again and again is uh, that we've had the opportunity and the privilege by God's grace and mercy to continue to get to see one another. Uh, even, even those of us who are gathering virtually and uh, are going to watch this tomorrow on the live stream or later in the week, uh, that we have this privilege of trying to work to stay connected to one another in relationship with one another in a common fellowship in the Holy Spirit as followers of Jesus. And so praise the Lord for that. Uh, look forward to spending some time with you in that tonight. Uh, I do want to make mention of something. Uh, our young people are going to stay in the gathering with us tonight. A uh, couple, couple things about that. We try to, uh, probably about six times a year, give or take, uh, keep our kids, our elementary kids, in the gathering rather than in children's worship. Uh, the purpose for that is, is we believe children's worship is a really great opportunity. We're invested deeply into uh, a next generation, and we think that elementary kids, especially kind of with their, their lifestyle, attention span, and what they learn best with uh, could be in a dedicated environment together. However, we also think that there's times where they need to see uh, us worshiping together and what the body of the the church looks like in corporate worship, and so uh, that they don't hit sixth grade, seventh grade, and just go, oh man, I've never seen this before. I don't know, this, this is different than what I expected. And so uh, we do a couple things. One, if you're not an elementary child, uh, here's what I'm encouraging you to do. Be patient, right? If they're a little restless and they're making noises, think of that as a joyous thing. Uh, I promise you, all across the United States, there are churches that have no children in them, and those churches will die with their youngest generation. And so uh, in that, we, we rejoice in the fact that God has gifted us and given us the ability to minister to young people, and so I, I pray that you have that mindset. Uh, also, if you are one of those kids or a parent of one of those kids, when you came in next to the bulletins was this little thing that says family gathering kids book. Uh, if you didn't get one, you slip up your hand and we'll get you one uh, real quick. Speak now, forever hold your peace. If you're 25, you want one of these, 
You get up and get your own. Uh, I won't judge you for it. Uh, what it has is word search, uh, a couple, couple little things, ways to keep our kids kind of engaged and connected with some uh, visual aids and some things that they can do so that they can walk through the whole gathering with us. And so uh, I want to just begin as we pray uh, and jump into the Gospel of John to pray for them specifically uh, because we have the privilege to spend some time with them tonight and tomorrow morning uh, and, and then we'll uh, work through the Gospel account together. Lord, I want to thank you tonight and, and that we would put ourselves in a mindset that we would think as a people who are rejoicing in the fact that you've entrusted us with a generation that we are to raise up, a generation following us that would know you and know the things of you. And so I pray that you help us. Uh, I pray that we would be a people who would teach the words of truth, the words of life, the scriptures to our young people uh, in the morning when we rise and when we sit down, when we walk by the way and, and when we lie down uh, at all times, all parts of our lives, that we would be consistent in proclaiming Jesus to them and that as you give us the opportunity to do that, that uh, this would be impactful time for them, that uh, they would continue to get to see and know that they exist in a corporate body of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, who care deeply about them, uh, care deeply about one another, uh, and want to be united ultimately for the glory of your great name. So help us with that, Lord, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, uh, we're, we're going to uh, get to spend our evening taking the Lord's Supper after we study God's Word together. But I want to invite you to grab your Bible, go to the Gospel of John. We're going to take a continuation, the third week into our series in John's Gospel, uh, finishing up what is known as the prologue of John's Gospel. So uh, we said the first 18 verses in John 1 are probably the most significant set of verses in that Gospel account uh, because it really lays a firm foundation for what John's going to try to describe and fill in over the rest of the Gospel. So we're going to speed up as time goes on in the chunks of Scripture we take, uh, but we wanted to lay this foundation well because we said among the things that John works to teach us and tell us, uh, the very centerpiece or the forefront of that is that we would know the identity of Jesus, that we would know who Jesus is, and then he says, and in believing in his name, we would have eternal life, that uh, it's both an, we said an apologetic and an evangelistic purpose. Apologetic in that we would accurately know who Jesus is and evangelistic that as you know who Jesus is and you're believing in him, that the Bible tells us that's the path of life and life eternal, spiritual eternal life in Jesus. And so everything that John has goes back to the identity of Jesus and, and really uh, works right out of the gate to answer this question, who is Jesus. Now, in order to work through that again tonight, I want to uh, just answer that question first incorrectly uh, in the three things that I think, I think you see most commonly, both historically and currently, in the answer to that that's, that's just wrong, right? Who is, who is Jesus? In fact, John's going to really dissect this because of these potential wrong answers, right? The first is that Jesus is uh, fully God but is not, or, nor was he ever, actually 
a man. Uh, this John's going to work very hard to kind of dispel such a rumor because in Greek philosophy, in early culture surrounding the time when he writes, there's a really common thought. In fact, the, the idea or the philosophy in Greek culture where John is writing from was this, that all things that are spirit and spiritual are ultimately good things, and all things that are flesh and physical are evil things. And so you and I might be evil in our flesh, according to said philosophy, and good according to our spirit. Now, before you kind of dismiss that as something that's kind of crazy, you think about where we see that over and over again today. I think, I think we judge a lot based on, oh, well, my intent was good, even though I did something that was wrong. Well, the Greeks were just going to walk that out into its logical conclusion was that all things spirit-driven were good things. All things fleshly were where the evil pieces of that came. Therefore, this, this philosophy called docetism comes out of this, that Jesus was indeed God, the God of the universe, coming down to earth, and yet he only appeared as a man, but was never actually a human being, that he didn't really experience life in the flesh, which John is going to really dispel, and we're going to work at that a little bit tonight, um, but that he was simply a spirit that appeared like flesh. Uh, and as we watch through John's gospel, you're going to see him over and over again really place a lot of emphasis on how untrue that thing might be. Now, the interesting piece is the flip side of said coin is that the Jewish leaders from the day that Jesus begins his ministry are going to attack the opposite piece of what we know about Jesus as both fully God and fully man. You see, the Jews weren't concerned with whether or not Jesus was actually a man. Uh, they were just going to contest the idea that Jesus was God incarnate. He could be a man, sure, but certainly Jesus wasn't God. In fact, their most consistent claim against Jesus was that he blasphemes. In other words, he claims to be God while they see this as not true. And the more and more Jesus is going to provide signs and proofs and miracles and evidence that this is the case, the more they're going to work to dispel and push down and get away from those things so that they might find a way to say this is only a man but rather not someone who is divine. And so John's gospel begins to marry these two concepts together, that Jesus is God and Jesus is man, fully God and fully man. Now, the third, I said there's three ways that I think we see this kind of get wrong in our culture, is one that I think we see most often currently. Uh, in fact, I'll give you a you're a really tangible example from, from my childhood that maybe some of you could equate with. Uh, in the 90s, there was a real popular thing in contemporary Christian culture where you had these bracelets, these real colorful bracelets, and they had four letters on them. You already with me? John knows. W? Come on. WW. It's not WWW, right? WWJD. What would Jesus do? Now, I think the intent behind those was good and helpful and wise, except uh, here's, here's what generally happens with a concept like this. And in fact, it's been carried out today, I think, to a further end that is problematic, uh, was that anything that you were doing ultimately was what you thought Jesus would do. Uh, in fact, we didn't consult back to 
what did Jesus do? I think, I think WDJD might have been uh, more appropriate for us, maybe centered us back into what actually happened. However, uh, instead what happens is people take some liberties and go, well, well, Jesus would certainly do this. His kindness would be on display exactly the way I want to feel it. His identity would be molded to exactly what I want. Ultimately, I want a Jesus that really fits the way that I think about God, the way that I envision the Savior, the way that I hold to it. And so rather than looking at this WWJD as an objective truth as to there's right things and wrong things, true things and false things, things that God desires of us and things that he doesn't, uh, oftentimes we sit in a culture where people don't outright reject Jesus as much as they're going to manipulate the truths of Jesus to use them for their own self-gratification and their own advancement of their causes. Amen? You with me? Uh, and so here's, here's what we're kind of getting at. The reason that John spends so much time early on in the gospel accounts identifying who Jesus is is because all around him, from the time that Jesus begins his ministry, his identity is under assault. From all different angles. It's under assault by those who think this isn't even a real human being. I mean, look at him. He does things that human beings can't do. He walks on water and he passes through people's midst. And he's uh, just kind of here one way and there another place. And he's uh, transfigured on this mountainside. And so all these things that are happening are, surely this could not be a man. And then he's on assault from a different direction. That is, uh, this man is clearly human. He is not God. How could he possibly exist before Abraham? He said, before Abraham was I, or before Abraham was I am. And, and he says, I'm the resurrection of life. How could, how could this man be divine? And then you had some other people who were willing to see the exciting things that Jesus were doing and going, I want to follow him so long as it fits my plan. He looks at them actually after he feeds the 5,000 people, the crowds gather, and he says, you're not here because of my identity. You're here because you ate and you had your fill. That you're just kind of looking to mold that into the piece that is most convenient for you. And so it was, was true in the first century, and you fast forward 2,000 years, and it's true today that the identity of Jesus is the most misinterpreted and incorrect thing uh, maybe that exists in all of our culture surrounding Christianity. And so uh, my plea to you is that this isn't just an academic exercise, but that it's vital for us to have a good comprehension of the gospel, to have a good understanding of who God is, and to have the ability to pray for, encourage, speak to, and help your unsaved brothers, co-workers, friends, people in the world know who Jesus is to have an accurate depiction of his identity. And I think that's why John spends the whole first 18 verses theologically grounded in his gospel account to give us a foundation of who Jesus is. And so we've looked over the past couple of weeks primarily at the, the divine side of Jesus' identity, that Jesus was indeed God. But now John's going to conclude this prologue bringing this into uh, what we call the hypostatic union, that Jesus is both God fully and man fully, that Jesus is God is man, and those two coexist in his time on earth. So let's read it together, and then uh, I just want to point out some reasons that I think this is so 
important for us to know. Uh, in other words, why does that even matter to me in my life today? All right, so pick up with me in verse 14. Let's read, we'll read 14 through 18, and then we'll talk. John says, in the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was, of, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He, Jesus, has explained him. All right, so this is, this is what I want to get at today. Simple question based on these verses. Why is it so important for us to recognize Jesus as fully God and fully man? Uh, I, I want to give you three reasons of the fully God side, and then two more of the fully man side, and then, then we'll pray. We'll take the Lord's Supper and rejoice in the truth of those two things in cooperation. So here's, here's the first. Let's start with why you and I need to know that Jesus is indeed God. He's, he's not a prophet. He's not a uh, religious guru. He's not a good guy. He's not a role model in and of himself, uh, but rather he is God in the flesh. Because here's the first thing that John points out. If Jesus is not God, I think then we still have a limited understanding of the glory of God. In fact, I, I'd argue that uh, in the modern church, we have a real limited understanding of what God's glory looks like anyways. But consider this in verse 14. He says, he, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that word begotten, don't think of that as uh, produced from the Father, but rather unique from the Father. That Jesus is a unique manifestation of God's glory. Let me, let me help you with why this was so vital, especially to the audience reading it then, uh, and especially to you and I if we read our Old Testament. Uh, consistently throughout the history of mankind, man had been searching for, looking for, and trying to comprehend and understand the glory of God to a vastly limited ability. Uh, in, in fact, uh, the first real good picture you get of God's glory interacting with humans in the scripture might come in Exodus chapter 40. Uh, here's, here's what's happened to catch you up on the history. God's chosen his people, the Israelites. He's led them into and then out of the land of Egypt. Uh, while they're there, they had multiplied and fulfilled the covenant that God had given to Abram, the father of the Israelite nation, which was to be fruitful, to multiply. Out of there, there would become a great nation. Uh, the Israelites are numerous. There are several of them. Uh, however, if you know the Exodus account, when they're in Egypt and they're multiplying, the Egyptians aren't super excited about that. Uh, in order to stop that, uh, they put them under hard labor. And so God, through his miraculous power, building out and showing his strong right hand, displaying his glory in the earth, delivers them through various plagues, through various miracles, and through various workings, and they get out into the wilderness. Now, 
we don't have time, but there's, there's a whole bunch of sin and issues and ups and downs during their time in the wilderness until we arrive near the end of the book of Exodus. And if you've ever done a Bible reading plan, uh, the later chapters of the book of Exodus is normally uh, probably about the middle of February, if you do it with the New Year's resolution, uh, where you end up stopping. Because, because you start reading about the building of this tabernacle. That's the, the word tabernacle just means tent of meeting. And here's what happens in Exodus chapter 30. Uh, they begin to describe God to Moses, who's going to deliver to the Israelites, how they should build the tabernacle. And you get chapter after chapter after chapter of instructions about how to build a tent. Now, maybe you're a construction guy, and you're like, actually, it was kind of nice, like, getting all these instructions about how I should build it and how big it should be. Like, if you're thinking like me, you're trying to figure out, they're sewing all this fabric together and they're putting things all these places and you're going, why does this matter? I mean, we got one Bible. Why are we putting instructions about a tent in there? Well, here's why. Because as they complete this tent, this tabernacle, as, as it is, this tent of meeting, they recognize that what it is is a meeting place with the glory of God. In fact, the book of Exodus ends this way. In Exodus chapter 40, it says the tent is built and then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of, the, of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they didn't set out until the day that it was taken up. So you get that, the clouds on the tabernacle, they're just hanging out, knowing God's glory is around them in this place. The cloud lifts and they go, it's time to pack up the tent, go somewhere else where God is leading us. And it says, for throughout all of their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of the house of Israel, that Here in the Old Testament, you begin to see this picture of God's glory dwelling with his people, although it is hindered in some ways. In particular, even Moses, the leader of the Israelites, can't go into the tent when the glory of the Lord is in there. Uh, In fact, Moses at one point is going to say, God, show me your glory. You remember this story? He's on the side of a mountain. He says, I want to see your glory. I want to understand who you are in your glorious nature. And God says, you can't. It would kill you. I'll let you see my backside as I pass by, but my glory would put you to death. Isaiah later, the prophet, uh, is going to be shown a vision in the seer of the king whose eye, he shows up in the throne room of God. You know what his first reaction is upon seeing the glory of God? What was me? I'm going to I'm going to die because the glory of God is segregated out from man until what John mentions, that in the word becoming flesh, in Jesus, we see with clear eyes the glory of God like we had never seen before. That the thing that was sort of mysterious to us until Jesus is made clear in Jesus. Now, two, two reasons that that's so vital for us, or two implications for this uh, in our lives today. The first is that when the Bible speaks of our eternal life, what it means to be saved, 
It speaks in both a past tense that we would be justified in Christ, a present tense that you and I on this earth are being sanctified in Christ, and it speaks of a future tense that you and I will for eternity be in heaven with the Lord. And the word that the Bible uses consistently in this is glorified, that you and I share in the glory of of God, that we get to see and experience the glory of God, which is most worthy of rejoicing in because we got to see and experience, and you and I know who Jesus Christ is, the flesh that is divine. The Word became flesh, and we saw His glory as of the only begotten from the Father. And so as we read about Christ, as we understand the identity of Jesus, as we think of Jesus as the God of the universe whose glory was willing to enter time for us, it ought to produce in you a longing for spiritual life, eternal life, that you and I are glorified with him someday, and we think ahead to that with great anticipation. The second thing it does is it ought to let us rejoice in the fact that we get to experience some of that now. That those of you who know Jesus have passed from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ, which means that you don't have to wait until you're dead to see the glory of God, but rather that the glory of God has been given to you, uniting you in the Lord through Christ. In John 17, in the high priestly prayer, he says, the glory which I had, this is Jesus praying, said the glory which I had before the foundation of the world, I give to them. Who's the them in that? It's us. Those who will believe on behalf of the names of the disciples. Those, those who would believe in Jesus based on the testimony of the disciples, that's you and I, are given the glory that belongs to Jesus. That we, even on this earth, have we, as, as we have been brought alive spiritually in Christ, get to experience God's glory. Uh, Jesus, maybe the, the clearest way I can put this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, right, teaching us how to pray. He says, your will be done, where? Come on, Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, <laughs> some of you with non-Baptist background should be a lot better at that. Uh, you came in Baptist background, we got to work on it, right? We'll build that up. Uh, and so in this, right, Jesus is saying this, the glory of God that is in heaven can be displayed on this earth in his kingdom power through who? Through us. Through us. Those, those who know him get to experience his glory and display it even here on this earth. Now, keep going with me because there's a second reason that it's so vital that Jesus indeed is God. Because if Jesus is not God, we can't receive what he says we're going to receive here. Look at verse 16. For of his fullness. Now, that means his fullness of deity. That his fullness, God, we have all received grace upon grace. Listen, the salvation that you and I have in Jesus comes exclusively because Jesus is divine. Think about it this way. If Jesus is just a man, he has no right to give us eternal spiritual life. It only comes from the fact that he is eternally God. 
He's, otherwise, he's giving something that's not his to give. Um, I remember a couple years ago, I uh, went to, I'll just, I'll call it a pizza place uh, in, in town. So that gives you the two gas stations, and you can just note it was one of those two. Um, we, we went to get gas station pizza, and I had ordered uh, a whole bunch. I'd ordered like five pizzas, and I had a coupon that said $2 off a large pizza. And I had ordered five large pizzas. Now, you know a little bit about me. I'm a thrifty guy to begin with. And so uh, as we go to pay for five pizzas, I say, I've got this coupon. Now, does that a, coup- that a coupon that applies to one pizza or five pizzas? Not my decision, right? Uh, turns out that the clerk at said pizza place uh, didn't know if that was her decision either. And so she decides, well, I should call somebody maybe and find out. And I was like, I'm just getting ready to be like, it's $8. I don't know. Just put it on one pizza and give me the pizzas. She uh, can't get a hold of the person she's trying to get a hold of. And so she hangs up the phone and she goes, you know what? I'll just give it to you on all the pizzas because I'm feeling generous tonight. And I thought, well, that's great. I just saved $8. And then I thought for a second longer and thought, well, she didn't pay for it out of her pocket. Right? I, so, so she's feeling generous with not her money. Right? Let me, let me tell you something. I'm thrifty. I promise you, I can be generous with your money, okay? You, you want to give me permission to be generous with your assets? I'd be happy to do so, right? I don't know if I'm feeling generous with my money. However, if it's paying out of somebody else's pocket, yes, order another. That would be great. I'm feeling generous, right? Here's, here's what John's trying to get at when he says, out of the fullness of Jesus's deity, his identity as God, we've received grace upon grace. That if Jesus is just a man, that his death on the cross is just another death. He does not have the authority to give you grace upon grace. It has to be his to begin with. It has to be his fullness of deity that can offer you the grace of God for salvation that is eternal life that only comes from the fact that he owns that in the first place as divine and so he says out of his fullness you and I might receive grace upon grace that Jesus is the only one who dispenses grace to us because he's the only one who existed from eternity past who put on flesh and came down to life for us now the third reason keep going with me, is found in the last verse of this prologue. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He, Jesus, listen to this, has explained Him. Here's here's what he's getting at. If Jesus isn't God, then, then God is left unexplained to us. Uh, in fact, you, you saw this in John's time and day, uh, as we mentioned, that the Greeks kind of have these crazy philosophical ideas, right? Remember, he says, in the beginning was the word, and they, they thought this word, this logos, was not actually a person. It was just kind of this divine force that sort of brought together all the universe. We said it was kind of like Star Wars. I don't know, it's been three weeks. Anybody watch Star Wars? I don't want to know. It's, I know that you didn't. It's fine. 
Uh, I would even accepted like the kind of crummy prequels. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. Uh, however, uh, the Greeks have this kind of mysterious, broken nature of who God's identity is because without a God in the flesh, he's left unexplained to us. In fact, Paul's going to say it this way in Colossians chapter 1, that all of the past ages, the identity of God was a mystery. It was veiled to us. He says it this way, that the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentile, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It says the glory of God is defined. The glory of God is explained. The fullness of God as the dispenser of grace upon grace can be known because of Jesus. So the nature of God the Father cannot be seen, cannot be comprehended fully in our human form. And so God, not wanting to leave us simply groping and wandering and not understanding, puts in flesh the third person of the Godhead, Jesus, and has him here for us that we might know. That we might know how God responds. That we might know that we serve a God of compassion. That we might know we serve a God who walks alongside of us. That he explains God to us. That the clearest and fullest picture of who God is is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And that you and I have the privilege to read about him, to hear about him, and to know him. Not based on our merit or our ability, but the fact that his grace has been given to us. Now, the other piece of that that's so vital is uh, that Jesus is not just God, but rather that Jesus comes to us as a God-man. Because if Jesus is not man, uh, we don't have a Savior who does this. Look at verse 14 again. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could see his glory. Glory is that of the only begotten from the Father. Listen, if, if Jesus does not become a man, we don't have a God who can sympathize with our weaknesses. That's what the author of Hebrews puts it as, that Jesus was not obliged to stay in heaven, did not regard his equality with God as a thing to be grasped or exploited, but that he put on flesh. He emptied himself. He humbled himself, took the form of a bondservant, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that in him we might know that we have a God that walks alongside of us and sympathizes with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way as are we and yet was without sin. The, the theological term there is, I can relate, that, that we have a God who can relate to us. That we, we have a God who comes alongside us. That we have a God who walked a mile in our shoes. That we don't serve, that we don't follow, that we don't know a God who is distant and far off. But that he, in his love for us, he became flesh, dwelt among us, related with us. Now, here's the most important one. And what we use to kind of shift into remembering and proclaiming this in the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 17. For the law 
was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Here's the central piece of the gospel message. That you and I, under the law of God, were guilty. And in that guilt and in our sin, we were deserving of death. We're deserving of the judgment of God. And in said sin, we die and we're judged under the law of God. And then, but God, in his grace, in his fullness, in his love for us, comes to give us grace upon grace in the fullness of his glory as that of the only begotten from the Father becomes flesh, dwells among us, and in our salvation in Jesus Christ, nothing that you and I do but in his grace alone transfers us from death and judgment and hell into life spiritually and eternally by the work of Christ so that you and I are no longer under the law but have grace received through Jesus Christ. That if Jesus does not become man, if Jesus is not fully man, along with being fully God, that you and I are still dead in our trespasses and sins because Jesus has not died for them. You get that? It, that we would remain dead in our trespasses and sins because Jesus never died to pay for them. He's not a man, he cannot die, and he would have never paid for our sins. That ultimately, what John sees is so vital about Jesus both being God, but also being man, is that if we want to live as people under the law of grace and truth, not under the law of sin and death, it has to come in the fact that Jesus and his death on the cross accomplished it for us. I mean, I'll finish with this story. Um, so, yesterday... I guess last night, we were hanging out, uh, my, my son and I, and he is almost six. Uh, his life, like, it just, it just exists. There's things that he has to do in life, but they just exist so that he can play Mario on the Wii, okay? That's like, at, at his point in life, that's what it's about, right, bud? Mario. There you have it. What do you do with your life? I just play Super Mario mostly. Uh, and so, so the main question that I get, okay, shh, hold on. You wait. You'll talk later. <laughs> Shouldn't have asked him a question here. Uh, it, here's from, from sunup to sundown, here's the question that comes again and again and again. Dad, will you play Super Mario with me? Dad, will you play Super Mario with me? Dad, will you play Super Mario with me? And so uh, I want to be faithful to that and, and make sure that we're participating in that and setting good boundaries about it. But, but in that, uh, last night we had an opportunity to play. Uh, we're playing, and, and I got to tell you, um, as I get older, my video game playing abilities are sliding down, right? Like, I, I know that, like, your body fails you, and you start to cripple up and fall away. I didn't think that that would be recognized in, like, my video gaming, uh, but it is. Uh, and so, I just can't react as quick, and I just, and so it's, like, a little bit frustrating, and then not only that, but uh, he, he doesn't really play, like, sitting still. He's, like, spastic and jumping all over the place, and, like, just flying, and he's, and he's running into my guy, and then I'm, I'm trying not to get angry about that, and I'm just, I just work, it's, it's just work, 
I'm just stressed out working to try to beat each consecutive level with him. So, hold on, bud. You keep, let me tell the story. You can tell it later. Fix my mistakes, okay? Uh, and so, uh, in this, I told you I shouldn't ask him a question. Uh, in this, uh, we're, we're playing and we're getting past some levels. And uh, we, we get past each consecutive level and we get to the place where it's like the castle or whatever it is. But you got to beat that in order to save your progress in the game. Uh, and so as we're playing, we get near the end, and there's, uh, there's, there's like a, it <laughs> doesn't matter, there's like a bullet thing. It's going to hit me, and we're going to die, and then the level's over, and we just, we just fail. Uh, and Josiah, like, takes his guy and jumps in front of me and hits the bullet, so he dies, and I continue on, and, and like, by luck and grit, like, I managed to beat this, like, thing, and we, we saved the game, and, uh, and really, like, I don't know if a better thing has ever happened to him in his recent history, according to him. Uh, he's, like, jumping up and down. He's so excited, and as soon as we get done and we save it, he looks at me and goes, Dad, I died for you. I said, you did, bud. He said, yeah, I died so that you could win for us. I, I died for you, right? And, and lo and behold, there you have a not quite six-year-old just really beginning to put together conceptually the pieces of the gospel, right? Uh, this is, I mean, this is what John's getting at when he says, uh, in Moses, you and I were under the law, that we are given a picture of what it looks like to be righteous in our own abilities, knowing that each and every one of us will fall short. You just won't make it. You just done wrong, thought wrong, spoke wrong, are wrong, are against God. The Bible says, hostile in mind to him. But in Jesus, in the one who puts on flesh, in the one who came and was made as a man, as are we tempted in all ways, yet was without sin, was the one God-man who was worthy, who satisfied the conditions of the law, who lived a life that was perfect and righteous according to God, and then, and then he died for you. And then he traded his life so that you and I might have eternal life, grace upon grace, in his name. That's why it matters. That's why Jesus' identity supersedes all because he died for you. That God, the eternal incarnate God, God the Word in the beginning, became flesh and dwelt among us so that we would see his glory full of grace and truth and in him, in his life and in his death, the grace of God and the truth of Christ would be realized so that you and I might have grace upon grace. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, in just a moment, we're going to finish tonight by taking one of the two ordinances of the church. The Lord's Supper, an opportunity for us to remember your broken body and your shed blood for us. I pray that it would be something we cling to, not, not seeing ourselves as worthy, not seeing ourselves as capable, not seeing ourselves as great, recognizing the most important truth in all of history that you, the God of the universe,
put on flesh and dwelt among us. And not only that, but that you died for us, that we might have life. Let us trust in it, Lord. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.